Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode. I'm your host, Roy Swart, father of seven, MIT graduate, active engineer in the high-tech industry, and most importantly, bought and paid for, bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our mission here at the Ambassadors Forum is to equip you to be able to better understand and defend your faith by thinking biblically, the same way Jesus did it. I have a special guest with me today that I met at a Youth Apologetic Summit in Bend, Oregon earlier this year, Krista Bontrager. Krista is a fourth-generation Bible teacher. She's an author, podcaster, former university professor, and homeschool mom. Krista has a BA in communications from Biola University and an MA in theology and an MA in Bible exposition from Talbot School of Theology. She runs a popular blog called Theology Mom, and along with Monique Dusan, Krista co-founded the Center for Biblical Unity to provide a place for respectful and biblically faithful discussions about racial unity and justice. Krista, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks, Roy. So let's start at the beginning. How did you first get interested and involved in apologetics? Um, I met a gentleman named Kenneth Samples, who used to work with Dr. Walter Martin at the Christian Research Institute back in the 80s and early 90s. And Ken and I and my husband became acquainted. We began attending Ken's class down at Newport Mesa Christian Center back in 1993. Mm. And we struck up a friendship and I heard Ken talk about things I had never heard before. My husband and I had both grown up in conservative Baptist churches. My husband Mm. grew up in Salem, Oregon, um, at First Baptist there in downtown Salem. We just had great Bible-believing parents and churches, but we had never heard of apologetics. We had never Mm. heard about giving reasons or answers for our faith. We were Mm. very intrigued and began to study more of these things. And that became a lifelong journey. Cool. Well, what was apologetics like back then? 1993, that would have been before the internet, before cell phones. (laughs) As I tell my children, I went to graduate school, I went to college before the internet. (laughs) What were the questions that were on people's minds at that time? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that back then, you know, we were only in the more embryonic stages of postmodernism. Modernity still was widely the ruling framework at that point. Mm. And so, you know, the big questions were about does God exist? And how do we know him? How do we know that Jesus is really God? The more Mm. standard apologetics questions, I think in the last... 10 or so years, the culture has shifted the apologetics conversation to being one of, is God good? Yes. Is he even knowable? Yep. And so they're asking different questions now. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. One of the experiences we've had here in the Portland area, when, you know, we go to events, we talk with kids, we do Q and A's at youth groups, and the pastors will usually come up to us afterwards and say, wow, what you just did, that wasn't even really apologetics. (laughs) And we're like, right, because those aren't the questions that are on the kids' minds. That's not what's in our culture today. 
I love how you put that. We've moved from is God real to is God good. And just to add to that real briefly, I think that there still is a need to sure. make the sure. case that God yeah. exists and that the God of the Bible is the one true way to access the fathers through Jesus yeah. and that salvation is important. So what I find with young people is they're not as interested in that conversation because they don't know it's a need. It's not yes. a felt need right. for them. Right. That some point that young person has to sift through, well, is your views on race issues or LGBT issues? Sure. How sure. do I know that your view is the correct view? Exactly. And that's where the more classical arguments come in. It's kind of funny in terms of a order of operations, so to speak, in the biblical thinking. It seems like people used to say, is God real? And then once they're like, okay, I think he's real. Now let's get to, is God good? At least our experience has been, they start with, is God good? Is then they go back and say, hey, wait a minute. I think I skipped over the, is God real part? <laughs> Let me just go back sure and fill that in and make sure that I've got a good case for that. And so we've actually seen people be persuaded pretty quickly on the, is God real part? If you've got good arguments because they've started at Is God Good? So anyway, fascinating, fascinating stuff. Well, one of the hottest topics in apologetics today is race. And I know that that's been an area of focus and ministry for you these past several years, Krista. What is the Center for Biblical Unity and how did it come about? Yeah, Monique Dusan and I met in the fall of 2017, and she was a missionary in South Africa, and I was living and still am living in Southern California with my husband and my family. And um, we struck up a friendship. We were just talking on Zoom and Facebook Messenger and that sort of thing. And she came home from the mission field in June of 2018. She came to live with my family. She had mission field-induced post-traumatic stress wow, disorder. Wow, wow, wow. And she was attacked on the mission field several times. Oh my goodness. And she needed to come home. She needed a place to live and try to begin a, some kind of healing process. We weren't even sure in the beginning if it was possible to be able to heal from the level of PTSD that she had. Wow. Uh, doctors told us that she would never work again. Wow. There was talk of, you know, should we think about trying to institutionalize her? It was pretty bad. And wow. uh, my husband and I just decided that we would open our home to her and bring her into our family. So we started hanging out and spent a lot of time together, going on a lot of hikes and trying to get to know each other better. We were friends, but we didn't know a lot about each other. <laughs> we didn't know about a lot about each other's backgrounds or families or childhood. So... Wow. As we were out walking a lot and hiking, we just started getting to know each other and soon emerged that we had very different views of the world. And mm. through that unlikely journey, eventually, uh, Monique started changing her mind about something. Wow. Wow. And I started changing my mind about some things. And we started coming together and just seeing mm. a need for a place where people could have safe and biblically focused and respectful discussions about race and justice in an educational way, in a way of 
trying to get people interested in the conversation who didn't know they needed the conversation, but to do it in a a fun way and a relational way in a family Mm -hmm. environment. So that's really where the Center for Biblical Unity came about. And then just a month or so later, we were in the throes of the pandemic. And then eventually (laughs) the George Floyd situation happened. We just kind of gained a social media following as a result of the events of George Floyd. It definitely helped to raise our visibility. Wow. What a what a beautiful story. I think that's just so wonderful that it was formed out of this respectful, caring relationship for each other. The way that you described that two people who both love Jesus but maybe had different worldviews coming together in a respectful dialogue and finding out that you could both change your mind and, you know, arrive at a better place closer to the truth. Yeah. What a cool role model and example for probably what you're trying to do every day now with people. Yeah. Sometimes we look at our friendship as a microcosm of our hopes and dreams for other people. We had a lot of fights. I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna miss words here. Like, you know, it wasn't, you know, a straight road to glory. It was a lot of twists and turns. That's yeah. for sure. But we hung in there with each other, and cool. we knew that our friendship was very important to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And whatever these disagreements were, because we were in Christ, we had to find our way through them. And I think that Monique's illness worked to our benefit because Mm. she didn't have anywhere else to go. Her bed was (laughs) at our house. (laughs) We had to work it out. We had to keep talking. (laughs) It's fascinating that you highlighted that aspect because I see that so many times when churches or pastors or denominations or whatever, they disagree and they say, fine, we're all just going to take our ball and go home. And I think we do quit too early. We give up too easily on, you know, finding this common ground of truth because I think so many people are committed to Christ and it's so hard to work through all of these things. And so that's cool. Well, I know one of the ideas in our culture today that's dividing families, it's dividing churches, it's dividing people, even in their own mind, is critical race theory. Uh, How would you describe the way critical race theory presents the problem in the world that needs to be solved and what does critical race theory offer as a solution to those problems? When Monique and I first started making videos about critical race theory in 2019, we couldn't hardly pay people to watch those videos. (laughs) And I kept saying, this is the next frontier. You better get ready. And I know a lot of influential people in apologetics. And as I would be engaging with them, I'd say, this is the next thing you need to get ready. And they'd be like, oh, no, that's silly. That's, you know, that that'll never last. That's incoherent. Now everybody has heard of this. You know, it's all over the news. It's in everybody's mouth. The first thing people have to understand is that critical race theory is one branch of a larger umbrella of critical theories. Mm. So I I want people to understand that this is actually not a discussion about race. Mm. The critical social theories, and I'm using that word with a plural. So we might think of other social theory, critical social theories, critical race theory is one of several. Mm. So now we're also seeing the emergence of queer theory. Mm. 
many of us are familiar already with feminist theory. Mm. There's the rise of ableist studies, Mm. critical child studies. People working in education may have heard of a gentleman named Pablo Fiore in his book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Mm. This is a very influential book that is bringing in the critical social theories into education. So what we need to understand is that critical race theory, I want people to think of it like a car on a train. Mm. So the engine that's pulling the whole thing is the critical social theories. Mm. That's good. It's an interconnected group of theories that Mm. share certain principles in common. So Mm. each one is its own academic discipline, but there are certain shared beliefs. In critical race theory, you know, if people want a good introductory survey is read a book called Critical Race Theory, an Introduction by Delgado and Stefancic. That's like Mm -hmm. a nice little paperback college freshman level introduction Mm -hmm. to critical race theory. And critical race theorists differ on some of their principles in the first edition of Delgado and Stefancic's book, I think there were maybe like five or six principles. Mm. Now some scholars are up to like 16 principles. But basically what it is, is it's a way of trying to look at the problem of racism, how to recognize it, how to diagnose it, and then proposing certain solutions to it. Mm. And it's done through the lens of seeing people and categorizing people as either those in the privileged or oppressor type of bucket and those who are in the oppressed or, you know, the marginalized, we have different words for them. But what we want to do is redistribute power through reorganizing what are called power structures so that the marginalized or the oppressed are uplifted to power and those who are in the oppressor categories are decentering their power or giving up Hmm. their power to the marginalized or the oppressed. That's kind of a very layperson's definition and picture of what's involved in the critical social theories. That's what would be the thread that would hold them together. Critical race theory focuses in particular on race and redistributing power according to racial dynamics. Queer theory would redistribute power according to people who are on the queer spectrum and so on. Okay. One of the things that I hear a lot is as a reason for why the church should accept critical race theory, or, or any of the critical social theories for that matter, is that it's just a tool. It's just a tool, like you said, for diagnostics, for analysis, for you know brainstorming solutions. Do you agree with that? Is it just a tool that we can use you know, for good? Is that deceptive? Because it absolutely is a tool. I agree with that. The no. question is, is whether or not it's a neutral tool. Let's use Neil Postman's example in his book, Technopoly, of the stethoscope. The stethoscope is a tool that doctors would use to listen to your heart, listen to your breathing, see what's happening, and that sort of thing. Prior to the invention of the stethoscope, they would just ask you diagnostic questions. You know, do you have breathing when you do this? You know, (laughs) the stethoscope came along and is a tool in that sense the question is, is how am I using the tool? 
it can be effective, you know, in the hands of a good doctor or potentially not effective in the hands of a bad doctor or someone who doesn't know how to use the tool. Right. Let's consider another tool as a knife. If I'm a skilled chef in the kitchen, I can use a knife for many good purposes. If I'm a serial killer, I can use that same tool to do great damage. Sure. So into these senses, tools can be neutral. The question is, is is critical race theory or any of the critical social theories that kind of a tool? Sure. Because that's what, when people come and they say, well, it's just a tool to diagnose a problem, what they want me to subtly believe is that it is a neutral tool mm. and mm. that it just depends on who uses it. I disagree with that. I don't think that the critical social theories are a neutral tool because mm. the framework of what stands under them, I would say at almost every point, contradicts the biblical worldview at a fairly foundational level. So let me start with some areas to be positive because I don't want to completely demonize it and I want to be fair because there might be people who listen to this who are sympathetic to sure. aspects of critical race theory. So let me start by saying a couple of points where I actually agree with the critical race theory framework. And that would be, for example, the idea that race is a social construct. The idea of compartmentalizing or organizing society according to skin color and mm -hmm. creating a hierarchy where the people at the top or the people that are the most beautiful or the most valued are lighter skinned people with blue eyes and then working our way down the hierarchy to people with the darkest skin and darkest eyes as being the least valuable. I would say no. <laughs> that is a social fiction that we all participate in. And in that sense, yes, race is a social construct. So I would agree with critical race theorists on that point. I can agree with that because I would say all races, all people, all humans, better stated, mm. have inherent dignity, value, and worth because they are created in the image of God. God does not categorize people according to melanin. God does not sort people out and assign a value according to melanin. Mm. So neither should I. Sure. Um, I should look at people as being individuals in that way and as having inherent dignity, value, and worth. So that's a minor point where I would agree with the critical race theory framework. Okay. Um, and I could maybe use that to build a little bridge of like, I affirm you in this. I also think that race is a social construct. Right. But when right. we drill down, you know, quickly into, you know, what the key beliefs are, one of those key beliefs is that, yes, race is a social construct, point of agreement. But then critical race theor theorists go on to say skin color is an essential part of the human person because of the meaning that society has attached to it. And so mm -hmm. this is why you hear critical race theorists say, on the one hand, race is a social construct, 
but skin color in our society is considered to be an essential part of a person's social identity. So mm. therefore, the skin color of the person is often seen as being the same as their culture, that person's culture, their beliefs, their values, and even the stereotypes about mm. that person. And so I know everything I need to know about this person simply by looking at their skin color. And it expresses this sort of tribalistic way of thinking. So if I see a white person, I automatically am supposed to think, oh, they're probably a conservative Republican or an evangelical. <laughs> or if I see a black person, oh, they must be a Democrat, you know, because they're black. If they're Asian, oh, they must do well in school, you know. So we assign these things and sometimes it can even be like unconscious. We don't even, mm. we're not even aware of it. Mm. Um I think that that dividing the world according mm. to skin color is a profoundly non-biblical idea. Mm. There is no place in scripture where God engages in that project. Right. There's no place in scripture where God says, well, white people, you need to pay attention to your skin color. There are certain sins that you are more susceptible to committing because you are white. Hmm. Black people, you are exempt from these particular fruits of the spirit because you have a right to be angry hmm. or you don't need to offer your forgiveness as quickly as the white person. Like hmm. that's not how God deals with us. Hmm. God is impartial. There's no particular sins that afflict us more because of our melanin. Hmm. That is a profoundly unbiblical idea. Hmm. So when we start engaging in discussions and saying all white people are fragile when it comes to talking about race, hmm. God does not deal with us like that. Hmm. He, hmm. he doesn't talk that way. God's right. way of talking about humans is, are you in Christ or are you in Adam? Hmm. If you are in Adam, you are far from my covenants. Mm. You are a child of wrath. You are darkened in your understanding and your thinking. I mean, God has a lot to say about right. those people who are in Adam. Are you in Christ? You are forgiven. You are saved. You are a child of God. You are members of my household. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is how God talks. Mm. And so when we allow our vocabulary and our thinking to be hijacked by a sociological framework that wants to reorganize all of humanity according mm. to skin color, we are engaging in a, a project that is in deep contradiction to mm. scripture. Mm. So I would say the, the very framework of critical race theory contradicts the framework of the Christian worldview. So mm. it is not a neutral tool that used in the hands of a skilled surgeon on the one <laughs> hand can be helpful and good. I am a skeptic of that. That explanation is so helpful, Krista. And I think it brings a lot of clarity to critical race theory, you know, how it operates, what its basic foundational assumptions are, and also how it contradicts the Bible. 
And so I would like to ask you to come back for a second episode to continue to explore these things. But I think we've laid a great foundation. I love the background about you and Monique. And then we kind of just started to unpack what critical race theory is. So if you can join me for another episode, I'd love to have you back again. That'd be my pleasure. All right. Thank you very much. Now, how about you? Have you found that you're often in disagreement with many of the people that you love, friends, family, people in your church? What do you do? Have you found race to be a topic that's divisive, divisive with those friends, divisive with that family, divisive with other people in your church? As Krista explained today, the Bible has answers. God has described a worldview in the Bible that makes everything make sense. When we think critically, when we think logically and reasonably, when we think biblically the way that God thinks, all of these problems and solutions come together and make sense. I want to encourage you to visit our website, theambassadorsforum.com, to check out some of our other helpful resources. I pray that God will raise you up in your own faith and send you out to share that faith with others in the grace and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until next time, I'm Roy Swart. May the Lord bless you and keep you.